Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The Andy J Podcast. Podcast. Hello, welcome to the first episode of the Andy J Podcast for 2021. How are you doing? How's your week going? Well, here in the UK, it's a bit bizarre, isn't it? I mean, Boris Johnson last night, this show goes out on Tuesday morning, so Monday night, last night, Boris Johnson told us we're all back on full-on lockdown again, which means those of you who are parents are now homeschooling again, and... Well, the roundabout continues to turn, doesn't it? Of course, we have the vaccine and hopefully that will change the landscape in due course. But for the time being, most of us are either working from home or homeschooling or whatever that entails. Who knows? So if you're listening to this when the pod goes out, this will be very new. Maybe you woke up to the news. Maybe your kids went to sleep and woke up in the morning to find out they wouldn't be going to school again for the foreseeable. Maybe they didn't. Maybe you're listening in another country and the waves are lashing against your feet and life is glorious. Maybe life is glorious because you've got more family time again. Maybe you don't have kids and I'm just an old man prattling along. Who knows? That's not the point of this podcast. This podcast is about fascinating and gripping celebrity conversations. And what we thought we'd do is we would play out six superstars. We called it the TV Royalty X episode, and I'll explain that in a moment, because we found out that there's quite a new wave of listeners now, thanks to the Clarkson pod, and if you're new to the show, hi, thanks for joining us, and if you're one of the old guard that have been with us since the beginning, great, good for you. Hopefully these will be fun conversations to revisit, because we have pulled out some legends. How about this for a lineup of mega celebrities we have got the haircut himself nigel havers star of the phenomenal oscar-winning chariots of fire amongst many many other sensational movies and tv shows and just oh brilliant what a dude darren brown now there's a man who i think is incredible i've seen him live many many times before interviewing him i was really nervous because i'd seen him live so much and it properly is a proper star in my head so thrilled to be replaying that conversation the glorious celia imre one of the uk's finest acting exports by the way she's been in some massive hits and she's really made a name for herself in the states recently as well lovely lovely lady when i phoned her she was in nice i believe um glorious fantastic woman david Badil, comedy genius just all-round superstar author legend love him Badil. <laughs> Honestly, I remember Badil and Skinner when they were out, and that was incredible. So, real pleasure to be able to include David Badil in this. Nico Rosberg, 2016 Formula One F1 champion. Now, if you're saying to yourself, hang on, this is the TV Royalty X episode, how on earth is Nico Rosberg qualifying as TV Royalty? It's a fair question. First up, because he's been on telly loads in a race car. Secondly, and this is the fun bit, because in his new life, now he's retired from racing... He's a dragon on Dragon's Den in Germany. 
So there you go. That's how he qualifies. And then we finish the show. I've done this all out of order, by the way, but they're just a bunch of lovely conversations. We finish the show with just a national treasure, a lady who I think is great fun, and she's always such a delight on chat shows, and she was exactly the same with me. She was just a hoot. The incredible Miriam Margulies, uh, BAFTA winner for The Age of Innocence with Martin Scorsese, Professor Sprout from Harry Potter, etc., etc. I'm doing all this from memory, so I hope I'm getting the names exactly correct. But yeah, sensational, sensational actor. Although she told me off for calling her an actor, actually. She said, actress, I'm an actress. And that's fair enough. There's a bit of a grey area with what you're supposed to say these days. Anyway, I've rambled long enough. Thank you so much for coming to the podcast. It means the world. You stay safe. Enjoy the chats. It's just a, a bit of distraction with some really cool names this week. We're back to our usual format next week because we've got some celebrity conversations booked up for the week to come. We've got some fun names actually for you, so I hope you'll enjoy them next week. But for the time being, let's dive in. But start with um, let's start with Nigel Havers. The Andy J Podcast. My first guest is the star of blockbusters like Chariots of Fire, Empire of the Sun and A Passage to India. He's also a hugely successful TV presenter, has his own touring theatre company and he's sporting some of the greatest hair in the business. I'm delighted to welcome the one and only Nigel Havers. Nigel, how are you doing? I'm doing fine. The talking of hair, it's gone out of control. Right now. <laughs> I haven't had a cup for so long. I look like some bad person that would scare the kids away. You've had some pretty <laughs> big hair in, in several TV shows. You've had some pretty impressive big hair. I mean, is it is it bigger than we used to? I've had some very impressive hair over the years. And then, then I went for a much shorter cut recently. What I was filming when we were cut down was a, was a show called Finding Alice. And uh, I had very short hair. But that, that's a long time ago now. So it's gone a bit... Um, Father Christmas, huh? Nigel, you've done so much. I keep looking at your career, and I'm just sort of thinking, is there anything you haven't done? You've achieved um, so much in your career. I haven't career. played Hamlet. Right. I haven't played Hamlet. Um, uh, and once I was so keen to play Hamlet that I learned it as a sort of exercise. And, and um, I never got And then they never asked me. They picked somebody else, I think. And, <laughs> and I've forgotten it now. And I think it's a bit <laughs> late to play Hamlet. Apart, apart from that, I once wanted to do um, a BBC many, many years ago where I was going to film a very favourite book of mine called Fair Stood the Wind for France, an H.E. Bates book. And I was desperate to play the sort of leading part of a pilot in it. And so I went up to audition for it and I thought, well, you know, I've got this in the bag. I'm so perfect for it. And um, I didn't get it. And I was really mortified because I thought I was perfect. And from then on, I never, ever thought, I, you know, I never looked forward to you know, I never say that's what I want to play. That's what I do. I just, I just became a letterbox actor, which means that you wait for the script to come through the letterbox and then you do it. You're not at the point where you have to audition for anything, Nigel. Surely, come on. No, no, no. I don't. No, not. I don't do that. No. I made up my mind then that I would never sort of hanker off for a part. I just wait for the part to come. <laughs> that makes <laughs> sense. Less, less, less disappointment that way. I thought. <laughs> Well, look, I mean, just going, just quickly tracking back to Hamlet, right? You're saying it's too late now. Why? I mean, you're saying that age is an issue here? I, I, I don't see that. I think it might be. I don't know whether Hamlet, how old would my mother be? Well, Mind you, my true. mother is. My mother's very much alive and well, and she's 91. So, I mean, that's possible. Well, there you go. But, um, 
there you go. It is nothing's impossible. In fact, I'm hoping, all fingers crossed, at the end of the year we'll be doing. I'm doing private lives by Noel Coward. Yes, with Patricia Hodge, and we're playing. You know, the the couple. We're not too old. I mean, what we d- devised in the way we're going to interpret it is that we're both. We were both divorced, married to much younger people. That didn't work out, so we get back together. That's that's how we're playing it. You see, where there's a will, there's a way, and this is with your own theatre company, Nigel, isn't it? Indeed, in, indeed, it is. David Pugh, the producer, came to me and said, wouldn't it be a good idea to set up your own set of company? And my ego was obviously so big. I, I said, yes, what a fantastic idea. We're going to do three plays over three years. And uh, that's that's the first one. So, fantastic. Nigel, I have to ask you, because, I mean, I've been a huge fan of yours for such a long, 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 long time. I've admired pretty much everything you've done. I've seen all oh, your films. So I've been watching you on television forever. I, I'm also incredibly envious of your just natural charm and charisma as a presenter, which doesn't seem fair, because some of us have to pay to do that and it never quite works out what is it that gets you up in the morning what excites you what do you think when you jump out of bed which i imagine you do what is it that you think, i do i'm thrilled to be doing this today well you know i'm thrilled to be doing anything i've always uh, you know i go to the principle that um another day another dollar another day another wonderful thing could happen i have to say the people i meet and bump into are always very charming i i i, I just think most people are absolutely wonderful so on that theory, one can go out and just enjoy oneself. That's what I think. And when you say people you meet, do you, do you mean as in members of the public coming up going, oh, Yes. It's Nigel Havers, hello. Yes, no, they're always absolutely charming. Absolutely charming. It seems to me that it's pretty great to be Nigel Havers. There must be some days where you're in a bad mood or, or it's not quite it's not quite as sunny as um, it should be. Well, you know, I, I just doesn't last very long. Just um, think, think, you know, think of the moment, be in the moment. That's the best thing. I think. Do you know, this has become a life lessons thing. We could make this yeah. a feature, life lessons with Nigel we Havers. Could. Yes, you could. We could do it every, every week. A little, one tip, you know. Um, as Bob Monkhouse said once, he said, when I was a child, I, I, t- I, I, t- I said, um, I want to be a comedian. And everybody laughed at me. But, but they're not laughing now. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love it. That's perfect. Nigel, I've, yeah. I've been delving into your, your into your life a little bit. I hope you don't mind. But because you, you've had such a no, fascinating no, you've had such a fascinating journey through through life. You know, starting back in the early days where you convinced your parents, I, I think it was your brother that went to Eton and you said, "You know what? I'm I'm not up for Eton, which is, you know, quite a bold move. I want to go to theatre school." And and you got the yes. you got the nod of agreement from that. Yep. I'm I'm then I know the timeline is slightly yep. skewed, but you then uh, spent a fair bit of time how do I say this delicately? Putting a few drinks away with the Rolling Stones. Would, yeah. that, would that be fair? Oh, yes, that was fun. Yeah. <laughs> I was a bit young to put two, a few drinks away, but I was certainly got to know them, which was great. When I, did, I said I didn't want to go to Eton, uh, I'd already done a bit of research on the um, uh, uh, theatre schools, and I worked out there about a third of the price of being sent to Eton. So I went to my dad with, with, the, with the mathematics about going to a, Theatre school, and he, he thought, oh, that's interesting. <laughs> so, that sort of might have helped a bit. What I love um, about that, Nigel, is that you you proved to your father you were already smart enough. Yeah, no, no, that's right. I did. I I, I did all the research. I found the school I wanted, and I and I sort of already been and rang them up and said, is it possible to come and audition? And so when he said, actually, that, yeah, you can do that. I said, well, that's great. Tomorrow I'm auditioning for <laughs> them, and that was perfect. Right. And uh, I I got in, so that was it was fantastic. Really fantastic. And let's talk about roles because, you know, let's not beat around the bush here, Nigel. You know, we're both men of a certain age. You're a handsome man. 
You know, you, you, oh, I don't know about that. Oh, you're, you do. You've always <laughs> been a handsome man. You're charming. You're charismatic. You're athletic. I mean, I feel like I'm, you know, trying to trying to romance you myself at this stage. But have, <laughs> that that has clearly. I mean, it's, it must have opened some doors for casting agents and directors. Kind of, we've got to see the handsome one. The fact that you have the talent is is that. Oh, brilliant! He also happens to be an incredibly good actor that can cry on cue and move us to tears. But the handsome thing has helped, hasn't it? Well, I don't know. I mean, you know, one doesn't think of oneself like that. So, as I said, I just used to take pretty much anything that came through the letterbox. And I think that, that looking back, was a wise decision. Some mates of mine were very picky about the jobs they did. And I thought, that's a mistake, you know. You should just pretty much be lucky to be offered anything. So, that was my principle. And I've always sort of stuck with it. And when I made a, a film years ago with Michael Caine, I played his son in the movie. He said to me, uh, I always take any job that comes. And I would say to why, actually. And so that's why I'm here. <laughs> the Andy J Podcast. I am so, so excited to welcome my next guest, a supreme illusionist, magician, painter, writer, philosopher. In fact, he's a man who has an incredible talent for getting inside your head. I would describe him as the ultimate mentalist. Please welcome the amazing Darren Brown. How are you doing, Darren? Uh, very good, thank you. Nice to talk to you, Andy. Thanks for having me on. Well, I'm absolutely <laughs> well, you must have you must have been kind of referred to like that in the past. I'm assuming. Yeah, exactly. Well, mentalist was a perfectly fine uh, job title until that Alan Partridge episode many years ago, and then since then I had to scramble around for other titles. <laughs> well, you've got plenty of other subtitles. We're all good. In fact, on the mentalist, bit of a random tangent for you. I heard, this is some time ago now, I heard the Simon Baker TV show, the American TV series, where he is a sort of uh, kind of sleuth that assists the the, 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 the LAPD or whoever it is by being the guy that can get in people's heads. I've heard that was based on you. Is that right? The message, uh, I think it was. I think the writer was a, a, a was a, a fan, and um, yeah, I haven't actually seen it, which I which I should do. I don't know if it's based singling on me, but yeah, I think I think I think I was a big um, a big chunk of that, which is nice. It's, it's a really good it. show. You should. Hey, listen, you should totally. I hear. It. I hear it's amazing. I hear it's amazing. Of course it's. Well, of course it's amazing. It's based on me. <laughs> Well, precisely. But no, you'll kind of you you'll watch it and you'll kind of go, okay, cool. Because the other thing about him, I don't know why we're talking about Simon Baker now. I brought it up; it's my fault. But the other thing about him is that he is such a natty dresser. He wears the coolest suits going. So I think you'll be quite. It's flattered. definitely based on me. It's definitely based on me. There. Exactly. Definitely. It's totally you. It's totally you. It's awesome. No, right. You totally got to watch that. Now, Darren, look. There's a thousand things I want to talk to you about, but I have to start off with a little happier notes for reassurance. It is your new. It's your bite-sized book. If you will. Yeah. If you don't mind me calling it that, your bite-sized version of Happy, which of course everyone knows, was your sensational Sunday Times bestseller. And now we have accessible chunks of how to be content. Is that is that a fair way to put it? Uh, yeah, it is. Yeah, yeah. So I um, yeah, that book came out a couple of years ago, Happy, the, the first one, and uh, it's a bit of a commitment. It's a, it's a chunky thing. Um, so the idea was floating around to do a shorter version. Anyway, and then just given how things are at the moment, it just seemed a good uh, a, a good time to come out with something that was showing us essentially two thousand year old ways. So it, a lot of it is about stoicism, of um, doing away with unnecessary anxiety and, and disturbance, which was the stoic plan. They had an idea of happiness that was sort of about uh, tranquility. I guess so the Stoics were. A, it was a very popular school of thought. It was the biggest one, actually, before Christianity kind of took over. So some of the ideas 
were picked up by the early Christians and have sort of stayed with us in some form. So some of them are kind of familiar. But they were really uh, they really thought a lot about what the good life was uh, back then in a way we in a way we don't know uh, in a way we don't now. And I, I think it's a good a good message for nowadays too. Yes, I mean it makes a lot of sense. But but my question really is, does it still leave room? Because it because it is, you know, from from what I can glean from it, and and, and I have read Happy, incidentally. So obviously this, oh, is, this is which is wonderful, love it. But you know, there are things that you say in there, such as like for example, goal setting. Don't fixate too much on the future. You know, let's yeah. just, let's just kind of live in the now, which is also a very Buddhist thing, etc. You know, it's it's mm. about. I, I think it was, I think it was. Uh, the Dalai Lama who was asked, what's the secret to happiness? And his answer was, be happy. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it can be a choice. It's sort of an interesting thing. One of, one of, the, uh, one of, the, regret, one of the top regrets of the dying, which have been uh, looked into and logged, is um, I wish I'd uh, remembered to be happy. It's kind of a, one of those interesting um, things. But I think part of the problem is that we see happiness as a kind of a – we see it as a, as a thing, which sort of maybe like maybe other people have, or it's sort of our birthright to have. And we get a bit fixated on it, like it's a really simple thing, and it, and it isn't. It is sort of an activity, and it is choices, and it is uh, a byproduct in a way. It's not sort of a byproduct of finding meaning in your life. You know, it's a very difficult thing to chase directly. And the the trouble with the modern mode of, of, of happiness, the sort of American model that we've all inherited, which goes back strangely to. Calvinism, it's, it's, a, it's a sort of Protestant work ethic, which is that we have to believe in ourselves and set our goals, and if we just do that hard enough, then the universe will kind of provide, you know, we'll be able to crank life over into exactly how we want it to be. And the problem with all of that is that it doesn't really work. Like, goals are great for sort of short-term things, like mm. learning a language or so on, but you know, you can spend your life climbing a ladder and then realize at the top you had it against the wrong wall, to use the phrase that someone else has said somewhere along the line. Um, you, the, the trouble with fixating on those kind of things is that you, you just don't you just don't know. You don't know what's going to make you happy. Or when you get there, what next? You know, you've achieved the goal, but maybe the, um, maybe the journey towards the goal was actually what was keeping you happy and, uh, and occupied. And then when you, when you arrive, suddenly you're empty and and bored, or maybe you don't get there, and then you've got a feeling of failure to add to your problems. So it's actually a, it's a strangely optimistic model, but it, when life gets difficult, which it will always do at some point, it, it lets us down, that kind of, um, that sort of American-based <laughs> optimism. So the Stoics said the opposite of that, and this book is, is at heart saying um, that we have our, like if you imagine a graph, right? So we've got our aims and our, our goals on one side of the graph, like the x-axis, and on the y-axis is what they used to call fortune. They had a much greater respect for all the stuff that life throws back at you that we can't control. So that, that's the other axis, okay. life throwing stuff back at you. And the reality is we live a sort of x equals y line. There's a, a meandering diagonal that we live along, where sometimes we're on top and sometimes life is on top. Sometimes things are going the way we want, and, uh, and often they're not. And the trick is to make our peace with the fact that there is this other element of fate and fortune, you know, just, just life, stuff we can't control. So what the Stoics said was the only things you should try and control are the things that are in your control, right? Because you'd be needlessly frustrated if you tried to control things that you can't control. Sure. But the only things that are in your control are your thoughts and your actions. And that's it. And if you think about it, that is true. Everything else, everything outside, we have no control over at all. 
Uh, I suppose we have a little bit of control here and there. So again, you just tease apart the bits you are and the bits you aren't in control of. But it always comes down to you're in control of your thoughts and your actions. And everything else, the trick is just to kind of roll with it, to decide on some level. Everything on the outside is kind of fine as it is. And you just roll with that. And what, what this does is it brings your center of gravity back inside. And it gives you, it was all about a sense of robustness a sense of uh, a kind of inner tranquility. And these were politicians and movers and shakers. This is not a recipe for complacency. I guess it could be, but it isn't, it isn't about that. And I think it's a very solid, good uh, model of happiness. And it kind of gives you something to hang on to. It gives you some specificity because it is about the avoidance of disturbance as opposed to some strange chimera that is very hard to define. Yes, it's it's, it's sort of about levelling it out so you, you're not stressed, isn't it, really? It's sort of it's that, that kind of inner calm. Yeah, it is, it is. Now, of course, it isn't the answer to everything, and no one philosophy can be the answer to everything, but it is very good and it's very solid and it really does hold up. But I think there's an, there's an opposite thought, which the book also uh, goes into, which is... Well, first of all, the value of anxiety. I mean, like, you know, you you don't move forward in life. You don't grow unless you sort of have to let something go. Like, you know, you don't you don't cross the road on your own without letting go of your mum's hand. There's always some kind of anxiety to deal with if we're going to move forward in life. And having a certain amount of anxiety that's appropriate and being able to let that sit <clears throat> is also a good thing. That's a good life skill rather than fighting fighting anxiety and seeing it as the deep because you can make yourself more anxious uh, if you think that you're not supposed to experience any anxiety, right? That just isn't part of life. And the other thing is, which I think is really important, is that these points in life that we're taken to that, uh, that are difficult, we tend to feel when they happen very isolated and like maybe like we failed or we feel sort of imprisoned or we feel panicky and we feel alone. But actually those moments are where life invariably pulls us. So they are, in fact, they're the points where we're most connected to the rest of humanity. They are the point that we're actually having a very shared experience. They're the, point, the points of great connection to others, but they feel very isolating. So at the moment, I mean, we're feeling, we're in a very literal example of that, aren't we? We're on the one hand physically isolated, but on the other hand, all, all sharing in something kind of extraordinary. And sometimes acknowledging that and leaning into a feeling of of sharedness. So this isn't a stoic idea at all. It's kind of the opposite. It's more about leaning out rather than pulling your gravity in. Uh, I think it can also be, uh, yeah, a very, a very helpful thing, remembering that we all, we all have these messy and difficult and complicated and awkward lives. Yes, absolutely. And of course, I guess another thing that, that, that comes across very clearly in, 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 in the bigger book in Happy is, is, you know, it's, it's not about I'll be happy when or I'll be happy if. It's you know, you've talked yeah. about the journey, and it's and it's in a really important point. Now, one of the things that you talk about, I've seen you live many times. It's been an absolute privilege, and and also, mm -hmm. you know, it, it's one of the things that you discuss quite openly. You talk about how we're all trapped in our own heads. We tell ourselves stories mm. to make sense of what's yeah. going on. So, what is the story that you tell yourself, Darren? What do you, what do you say to you? <laughs> well, I think that the the point is for me is to be aware that stories are just stories. And it took me a long time of doing magic shows, and, and which is it's quite a childish thing, doing magic, really, of any sort. And it took me, a, I was always on the lookout for ways that it could have a more grown-up meaning as well. And I realized that it's a very good analogy for, for how we deal with the world. So here is this infinite data source coming at us. There's an infinite number of things that we could think about or pay attention to. So the only way we can make sense 
of what's going on is to condense things into a story, to edit and delete and form a story about what's what's going on in the world. Then we sort of mistake that story for the truth. And of course, a magic trick does the same thing, right? You you mis- you tell yourself a story of what you think you've just seen. And like with a magic trick, there's a whole load of stuff going on that you miss and stuff that we don't know about. And particularly nowadays, when you know the idea of one story being heard and, and, and your story being told and whether you're written in and out of the story. You know, this is very sort of common language nowadays. And I think we can jump very quickly to the idea of taking authorship of your story, like that's the end of like that's the end of it and that's that's the important thing. But there's a, I think the more important task for us is to realise that a story is just a story, that there's other stuff going on that we're not including. That is the nature of a story. Mm-hmm. Stories are told around firelit clearings, right? They're cosy, cosy things. But around that firelight there is you know, dark forest and there's all that stuff that's being excluded. And that's where the monsters lie. They always lie in the in the forest. The stuff we don't include uh, is the stuff that will come back and bite us. So it's it's the value of story. The world only reaches us through the stories we tell ourselves about it. You know, thing the big stoic lesson is that it's not events themselves that cause our problems. It is the stories we tell about them. So we can't avoid it. We can't avoid the fact that we are applying our sort of narrative prowess to, to everything that happens around us. So the key is to, on the one hand, take some control of that, like where we choose to focus and the, the stories that we do, do choose to tell. I think in the same breath, just realizing they are stories and our particular view of the world isn't the truth. Yeah. No, well, I mean... Everyone's truth is different, isn't it? So what is truth, mm. really? I mean, you know, we could get really big and philosophical, philo- philosophical <laughs> but I can't even say the word, let alone keep up with your level of intelligence. So that would that would lead us down a very dumb path, in my view, and you'd be excelling and I'd just be lost. But, Darren, when you wake up, when, when you open your eyes first thing in the morning, because th- this show is called Driven, and it's about what drives people, what people do that's mm. different to others, what, what makes people one remarkable and and you are remarkable the things you've done the things you've achieved the way you see the world and now the way that you're helping people actually is remarkable you are an outlier and you have been in many many different fields so when you open your eyes well you just are i mean even even your artwork is sensational and and, you know quite brilliant you know you're phenomenal (laughs) painter as as well as you know this supreme thinker and and performer and all these things just brilliant Anyway, enough, enough, enough yeah, smoke no, blown in the room. <laughs> you, you stop there. You, no need. But I, I'll just keep, I'll just keep waxing lyrical and then not get to my question. So when you, when you wake up for the first time, when, you, when your eyes open for the mm. first time in the morning, what goes into your head? What, what is it that you think of first? Oh God, um, I am particularly happy if I have a free day. I'm, I'm, I'm quite sort of, um, quite introverted. So what, what I. What I really like is a day when I can get on with, uh, like painting, for example, as you say. So I paint big portraits and sell them on my website now. So this is my main lockdown activity is painting. So that, I think a, a day of a day of freedom um, is very motivating for me. There is a uh, there's a sort of a, a stoic practice of what they called premeditation, which I don't really do, but occasionally on a good day I'll remember and I'll do it. Which is to take, you know, thirty seconds. Who, who can find it in the morning? Of, uh, of thinking, uh, thinking ahead to the day, and just getting ahead of any bad responses where you might let yourself down. It's just a kind of a little mental rehearsal of where you could, uh, you know, where you could be a, a better stoic or better person during the day. So that's that's a helpful thing. If I remember, if I've got stuff coming up, I think might be good. Um, 
So generally, I think uh, what really, if I know I've got the data paint, that is just a, that's a huge joy. I think just that, you know, so I'm sort of quite enjoying some aspects of the, uh, of this of this lockdown, right? it, you know, giving me a bit of, a bit of time to to get on with that. Well, that's good to hear. But but also, I'm hoping that that you haven't finished with making us dazzle and and taking our breath away. I mean, the number of things you've done to, for the for the British public and beyond, actually, with Netflix, and you're a huge star in America as well. You know, you you are still going to continue to dazzle and delight. I hope. Well, I, I hope so. So I, I, the tour I'm, I'm doing was supposed to start the week that lockdown hits. So um, so Showman hopefully will be back on the road. Well, 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 not back on the road, starting in February next year. So uh, this is yeah, this is kind of a hiatus, but uh, that that should be that should be up and running then. So it's nice having a bit of time and finding other things uh, to do. But no, I'm not. I'm not. Uh, not intending to just paint yet, but I do like the book writing. Book writing and painting is a very comfortable, uh, joyous uh, thing for me, followed closely by touring. So, yeah, hopefully that will all that'll be kicking off in the spring. The Andy J Podcast. To say I'm excited about my next guest would be an understatement, probably the understatement of the century. She's mischievous. She has a saucy reputation. She is a rule breaker. She also happens to be an Olivier Award winner, an icon in film and television, and a Lifetime Achievement Award winner. It is the amazing Celia Imre. How are you doing, Celia? Hi, Andy. Very good, thank you. What a marvellous introduction. Thank you. <laughs> the first thing I want to talk to you about is Better Things. Now, this is a show that I think is absolutely brilliant. It's an FX show, but it also airs on BBC Two, isn't it, over here? And yes, we're 10 now... o'clock on a Sunday night. That's the one. And we're now into season four, and I'm very mm-hmm. pleased to say that your role, which I love, by the way, you get some of the best lines, incidentally. <laughs> you I could be wrong because I've been watching from the start, but I feel like your role has got bigger and bigger. I hope it has. I mean, it's one of those um, parts and in one of those shows that it's never enough for me. Any episode that I'm not in, I tear into and throw in the bin in front of Pamela <laughs> because actually I want to be in every episode and every single scene. It, that's how much I love it. And I'm so pleased you do too. That's not funny. A Pascal get injured. And they could sue you. Nan, Mum's not going to sue me. It's just a code. I sued my mother. It's genuinely, it's it's funny, all the kind of stuff with the teenagers and the kids as they're getting older and how to behave as a parent and, and, and grandparent and so on. I kind of get it, you know? I, I'm kind of mm. with it. It's sort of, it's funny, but but kind of raw and on the money. It's a very original idea, and it's quite refreshingly told, I think, isn't it? I yeah. mean, sometimes people have said that it's a, it's a bit like a documentary sometimes, and you, <laughs> you know, and you wonder whether we're aware that there's a camera crew around. There are some embarrassing moments and some awkward moments, long pauses, and it's just marvellously daring, I think, in, in its whole concept, don't you? I, I absolutely agree. It's it's such a, it's it's kind of, it's unafraid to just take chances mm. and take risks. And mm. they they often lead to either moments of great comedy, which is which mm. is fantastic, or moments which are really quite poignant, where you're just kind of like, yes. gosh, that's that's quite telling, isn't it? I know. I know. Well, that's, I suppose, the, the, the great art. Because you can't, in a funny sort of way, Shakespeare knew, you can't have one without the other. You've got to have um, the sad and the funny. And if you can join the two back to back it's even better because it sort of takes you by surprise 
and it just it seems to be getting stronger and stronger Celia am, am I mm. right in assuming that this is going to keep going because of course season four suggests that clearly you know FX and the BBC know there's a, a, a special audience out there that are loving it I'm, I'm working on the assumption this is going to keep going well, I'm just so delighted, Andy, that um, suddenly the BBC are putting it out and um, people are knowing about it. Because, first of all, I think people think I've been on holiday for four years in America. <laughs> um, and secondly, um, uh, yes, season five has been um, greenlit. Brilliant. Um, which is um, thrilling because it's a tough old competition world out there yeah um but i think uh, pamela adlon the star the writer the director is very well loved in hollywood um and the stars are lining up to be in it i mean i don't know whether you saw the episode with lenny kravitz that i it was my first season actually yeah and then sharon stone pops up in season three people absolutely love it when pamela says to them really do you want to be in it they just jump in amazing you know, again, I'm so starstruck. It's absolutely thrilling for me all around. <laughs> well, it must be a two-way street, Celia, because they must be like, oh, my gosh, here we go. I mean, I, I imagine most of them are wanting some screen time with you, to be fair. Yes, but, you know, it's my sort of introduction to an American audience, really. I mean, I've always felt in my life that you can't really be internationally known until you've courted America. That was my feeling. And I think that, you know, I wasn't known in America particularly at all. I'm terribly proud to be in it, actually, because I do think it's an original. I really do. You know, that's that's so nice to hear because I, I genuinely have great affection for this show. It's been in my planner. You know, anyone that, that's kind of new to it, better things. Season four is out now on BBC Two. But, but if you haven't caught it from the start, go to iPlayer because seasons one to three mm. are there waiting to be mm. enjoyed and devoured. Uh, of yeah. course, people that have got something like Sky TV or whatever, probably the way I found it was via the FX channel. It's just great. It's just funny and engaging and engrossing and heartwarming and tragic. And oh, it's fabulous. I love it. <laughs> I'm so glad. So do I. <laughs> I could go on and on, but, you know, we've got so much to talk about. The other one that, that, that's out uh, is, is a new movie, which, Celia, I watched the trailer for this earlier. It's called Love, Sarah. And mm -hmm. genuinely, I welled up. And I know it's not oh really meant to do that, but I, I guess it just kind of caught me on a certain day. But it's, it's just... Well, it's... funnily enough, somebody else said that to me in that email today. Um, so I'm, I'm not quite sure what the trailer shows, but it does, you're right, it does start off rather grimly. It is heartwarming, and I think it's difficult to, again, with sort of light romantic comedies or however people like to call, um, you know, categorise things. I always think it's a shame that people do, but it's set in Notting Hill, it's set in a bakery, so you'd think, well... What's different? What's marvellous, actually, about Bill Patterson's character? So, so what makes your bakery so different? And it, it's because we have decided to cater for all the different cosmopolitan customers that yes. we have. It's true that the, the road that we filmed in, in Notting Hill, is famously cosmopolitan. And there are many, many people from all over the world who live there. And so we in the story say well why don't we make this bakery a home from home in a way and give to people of different nations their cake that will make them feel at home and that's really it's called uh, around the around the world in 80 bakes what's lovely about it is that you can there they are all sitting in the bakery having a lovely time just eating and everyone's happy and you just think well i wish the world could be a bit more like that a bit more like a cake shop my dearest sarah I'm sorry we haven't spoken for so long. Sarah, it's Isabella. I'm outside our bakery 
waiting for you. Perhaps we could meet up and discuss your brilliant bakery. It's time we spoke again. All my love, Mum. Mum would have wanted us to open this bakery, so that is what we're going to do. You can definitely see its potential. What? It's cracked in. What's that smell? Croissants. Fresh from the oven. And you can tell from the trailer, relationships are really what, what kind of bind this film and make it special. Yeah, absolutely. And a wonderful cast. I, I had a, I don't know why I keep having to play grandmother. It's absolutely <laughs> ridiculous. Um, but anyway, um, Shannon and Shelley and Bill and Rupert, they were a wonderful cast. Well, I, I read a, a recent interview with you where you, you sort of said that you were you didn't want to be getting roles with you know, where it was all about being older and having Alzheimer's and so on, which I mm. c- completely understand. And, and you just referenced the fact that the two things we talked about, you, you know, obviously grandmother is a role, but it's not defined in that way from, from the way I no. watch it. I don't kind of think of your character as, oh, there's grand. Oh, good. You know? No, good. Well, first of all, I'm jumping up and down on a trapeze in Love, Sarah, which is rather thrilling. I think I'm still 26, Andy, actually. Well, that's what too I right. Think. Too, so do I, see. <laughs> and, you know, it's, been, it's been quite a while for me as well. But, I mean, you'd, obviously, you talk about the kind of trapeze in Love, Sarah, not the sort of grandmotherly thing you'd expect. You, you know, you get you get a bit nude in better things. You know, it's... Uh... I know, I know, <laughs> I know. It's Something wonderful. that I really... Something that I really can't bear doing, actually, um, Andy, but Pamela Adlon, the star, the writer, the director of Better Things, knows I will do anything for her. So, <laughs> mm, yes. Well, you, you've got form <laughs> with it, to be fair, Celia. You know, I know. Calendar Girls, know. for example. Yep. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's it's not the first time, and I love you for that. I think it's just brilliant. I mean, I described you at the start as a rule breaker, and that's because uh, certainly, in, in my view, of course, we've we've never met tragically yet, but but this conversation is is changing that. But you mm-hmm. know, I would suggest the public do perceive you as this kind of wonderful maverick. I said mischievous as well. You know, you're good. You're, Thank you. You know, you're the kind of you're the fairy godmother. Do you know what I mean? Everyone knows you just kind of go out and make something special happen. Well, that's a lovely way of putting it. I mean, I have a go, that's for sure. I have a go and I and I don't necessarily play, play by the rules. You're right. I've not seen anything you've done where you play by the rules in terms of your, <laughs> you know, your personal <laughs> life and your, the, your character choices, etc. You know, you seem to just go, right, what's going to be the most fun? There was a wonderful play that I watched years and years ago with my dear friend Constance Chapman, who's no longer with us, unfortunately. And one of the characters says to the other character, and I think it's an older, you know, elderly couple, fun, fun, but you don't like fun. Well, I do. I mean, it's what I seek out in my life the whole time, actually, without being too... But yes, I do go for what's going to be the most fun and what's going to be the most challenging, I suppose, is the truth. It's how we stay alive, isn't it? You know... Ooh. Otherwise, what's the point? You just kind of go through the motions and every day's the same and, you know. Exactly. Meh. I mean, do, do, can I ask you about your time as a singing waitress? Oh, Lord. Yes, you can <laughs> if you like. Because, <laughs> again... It, it, <laughs> it, it was in the Shakespeare Tavern um, uh, by Blackcrab. I don't think it's still there now. Um, and it was me and Anita Dobson, actually. Um, in <laughs> In the times, you know, in between work. And... Um, we had to dress up with mob caps on and little um, white blouses and skirts. And we used to have to serve the dinner, which was not very tasteful, um, in um, 
in sort of like buckets, you know, like milkmaid, I suppose <laughs> we were. And we had to sing. We had to line up in the in the kitchen and come out singing The Lass of Richmond Hill. So neat, with smile so sweet, has won my right good will. I'd cry and resign to call thee mine, sweet lass of Richmond Hill. It was pretty grim, actually. And I think people had paid to eat as much as they liked. So sometimes they were sick all over the table and I pretended oh, wow. to do with me. <laughs> um, and also sometimes I pulled my flowers down a little bit lower so that I could get extra tips <laughs> and did. <laughs> but it was pretty grim, Andy, to be honest. But, you know, I don't regret any of those times, actually. Well, these are the foundations that make us, aren't they, Celia? You know, that's the, the sort of, mm. you know, if we don't have these wonderful experiences when we're younger, what can we draw upon? I, mm. I've got to ask you, I didn't realise that you, you worked alongside Anita Dobson. Did Brian May ever come in? No, oh. no, not then, not then. It was before those days, I think. Mm. <laughs> that would have been quite a fun twist. What a man, though. What a player. God. Oh, yeah, yeah. Isn't he? And what Marvel. hair. Mm. Yeah, we've, we've got a, a lot of love for Brian on this show. In actual fact, I was speaking, right. speaking to James May recently, and we, we put to put to bed the myth that he and uh, he and Brian are brothers because it's, a, it's uh. an internet rumour that needs to uh, <laughs> needs to be explored. Mm-hmm. Um, Celia, am I, am I allowed to go a bit further back in, into your past and, and talk about some of the challenges that you faced? Because I, I often find that this is, particularly with, with actors, this is one of the reasons why greatness follows because of challenges in, 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 in their kind of adolescence mm-hmm. and, and you were no stranger to, to that you know you, you you had some quite serious challenges with an eating disorder and and you know it, it saw you admitted to hospital and and receiving some quite horrific treatment mm. is, is that a time that that has stayed with you do you feel it has shaped you uh, into who you are these days yes I'm sure it has um the the thing about it um really and truly when I think back is um and I've said this before but I um, I feel sad for my um, darling mother um, because of all the worry that I put her through. And actually, I'd love to have that time back again because I'm afraid to say it's, um, you know, whatever I say, Andy, I will get into trouble. But from my point of view, it is something that you initiate yourself, you carry out yourself, and you are the only person that can get yourself better. Now, I'm not, you know, I'm not trying to dismiss it because it's a very grim thing to go through. But you have to understand anybody who's suffering from anorexia that I'm afraid you got yourself there and you truly are the only person that can get yourself out of it. But I do believe that life is wonderful and we must live it to the best of our ability, particularly in today's world. I mean, we don't know what's going to happen. And actually, there are some people who are very badly ill. It is one of those things that you can cure yourself. Uh, only you can. And and I would urge anybody to understand that. I'm not dismissing it. I'm not saying, you know, that it, it isn't a horrible position to find yourself in. But I promise you, you can get yourself out of it. That's in my experience. People will disagree with me, but I'm just saying what happened to me. Yeah, that's, that's, and, that's and I would I would encourage any anybody, you know, that I met to understand that it is in their power to get themselves well. That's all. Gosh, yes, it's. I mean, that's that's very powerful coming from you, Celia, because you, you, of course, have lived it yourself. How how mm. did you get out of it? I was very young, actually. I was in Great Ormond Street. A, a staff nurse said to me, 
you do realize you're taking up the bed of a really sick child, don't you? Now, for me, you see, Andy, that was the best thing she could possibly have said because it, it was a real, I hate to use the word wake-up call, but, I mean, it was. It was like being hit on the head yeah. with the reality of it all. Um, and so, you know, and it takes time to get yourself well again, but you can, and I'm living proof. Yep, that's the other thing. I mean, when I was ill, I didn't really listen to anybody. And possibly if somebody saw me now, they wouldn't believe that I've, you know, been in the situation. But I have, and I'm very proud to be able to live to tell the tale that all is well. And, you know, I'm enjoying every minute of life that I've got left without sounding too dramatic. The Andy J Podcast. My next guest, I am elated to be able to say, is an absolute winner, former F1 world champion and all-round superstar, and a man who has so much to say about the future. It's Mr. Nico Rosberg. Nico, thank you very much for your time today. How are you? I'm quite happy because I seem to fit quite nicely to the title of Driven in all senses of the word. Do you know what? That is something that I wanted to ask you from the beginning, is of course Driven is, it's about what drives people. It's about what gets people out of bed in the morning and, and keeps them going and makes them excited and makes them want to do bigger and better things. And I was going to say, in your life and your career, you've been driven in two different ways. You know, there was the, the beginning of your career, which was your entire childhood up until 2016, which was becoming Formula One world champion. And then there was the second chapter in your career, which is, which is what you're living now. So just quickly about F1, what kept you getting up each day? Because the amount of training and practice and, and focus you have to have to even compete at, at the most basic of level in, in motorsport is non-stop, isn't it? Well, basically, I'm so competitive as a person and I just have to win. When I'm doing something, I have to win. I have to become the best. And Rosberg, on his debut, gets himself up into the points. What a brilliant performance from young Rosberg, no doubt about it. The problem was, however, that I had a certain guy called Lewis Hamilton next to me with exactly the same machinery, same machinery as I had. So, <laughs> so that didn't exactly make it any easier to reach my goal of winning. But at the same time, it's an opportunity because when you're faced with such a huge challenge yourself, you have an opportunity to grow beyond the realms of you of what you thought was possible. And that's what I did in the end, particularly also the defeat. Getting defeated by Lewis, they made me so damn motivated because I never, ever wanted to feel that kind of failure and defeat ever again. So the motivation in me was like unbeatable in the last year in 2016. And, and that was all the assets then uh, which propulsed me uh, to winning the, the championship in the end. Obviously, you, you secured it. You achieved your childhood dream. What did that feel like? Did, did it seem real? It doesn't seem real because it, for me, it was impossible to win the Formula One World Championship. Uh, growing up, it was never a realistic goal. It's just, it's impossible. I mean, look, the legends, Michael Schumacher, Mika Hakkinen, no way are you going to be able to do something that's somewhere similar. Okay, not as many times, but still somewhere similar. And uh, even to the last lap, to the last lap in Abu Dhabi fighting Lewis, you know, Lewis being one of the best of all time, you just, it's its always going to be, you always think, okay, he's just some, somehow he's going to do something now, even in the last lap, last corner, which which is going to get him the win as as he always wins. For Nico Rosberg, 34 years after his father Keke became world champion, is about to see the chequered flag and the podium finish that he needed. 
Lewis Hamilton wins the Abu Dhabi Grand Prix. Nico Rosberg is second. He takes the championship 34 years after his father. It's like father, it's like son for the Rosbergs. It takes time to sink in because personally it's just so damn big. It's ridiculous. Uh, it takes time to sink in, but uh, it was spectacular. And the feeling then is just a feeling of total fulfillment because it's a goal that I've pursued for 20 years, such a long time. And then it comes true. Yeah. You cross that line and no one can take that away from you anymore. Such a big feeling of fulfillment. And, and then instinctively, it just felt the right moment to say, OK, I'm moving on now. Well, that's I mean, that's the thing which which was so fascinating is because obviously when we talk about people being driven, you know, people have different lives, different career goals, etc. You know, some people, they want to earn a million pounds. Some people want to be famous. Some people want to find love. Some people want to be a parent. In your case, you had this very clearly defined goal that may not have seemed achievable, but you were going to do it. You knew you had the talent. You knew you had a fast car, etc. You knew you had a you're a phenomenal racer. But even so, as you've alluded to there, becoming Formula One world champion, it, it, it was fairyland stuff. So when you did it, you know, the, the biggest goal of all, to then just sort of step away a few days later and say, OK, that's it, I'm, I'm done. What was that like? Was that, was that like a huge relief or was it a frightening decision to make? It was very, very scary. I mean, that was, uh, that was extremely scary because it was a huge disruption in my life and I had no plan. I had no plan for afterwards, so I was jumping into a void. At the same time, uh, for me, it was a very rational decision because it was always clear to me that I, my ex exit was going to be very important. Um, also because being driven into and being too extremely driven for me personally was going to be unhealthy in the long term. If I just want more and more and more always, it's going to end up in, in a disaster. I was aware of all those things. So uh, the timing had to be right. And sport is limited, you know, uh, maximum I had a couple of years left anyways. So uh, sport is limited and, and the exit was important to me. And it was the best possible moment. There was never going to be another moment as good as that. That's almost impossible. Um, and, and now looking back, I can say it's, I'm still floating on cloud nine as a result because my last memory uh, of one of the most powerful experiences in my life is still uh, just so damn amazing. And, uh, and so it's a huge asset for my, for my well-being in life, you know, and I'm just super thankful and that's why it was the right call. But I'm very sorry to everybody who was following me and supporting me, of course, because I totally understand they would love to continue watching me battle Lewis because uh, I think uh, people really enjoyed that. But, you know, I mean, I think we had some great years and... Uh, Got to move on. It's Nico Rosberg and Hamilton's onto the grass and Hamilton's had a massive crash and he's crashed into his teammate. The two silver arrows have crashed on the opening lap. How could we not enjoy it, Nico? It was fabulous stuff. But of course, you know, one thing that's going to surround you forevermore is people saying to you things like, because you're a great advocate for uh, electrification, for example, people are always going to say, oh, oh, you know, what do you reckon? Will you get a seat in Formula E and all this kind of stuff? And you, I thought you had drawn a line in the sand, which was like, I'm never racing again. And then I find that out you've been in a sim and you're e-racing. What's going on, Nico? What, I'm confused. Have you, are you still, are you thinking of coming back? What's happening? <laughs> so, well, that was for, uh, for Heineken, uh, for my partner. And uh, it's, it's for a good cause because I'm involved with them to save lives on the road. Uh, we're doing huge road safety campaigns with them. And so it was for a good cause. So I was, I was very happy to do that. And to be honest, I was really, really quick in Sims. Uh, in my in my career back in the day. Okay. Um, so I thought I thought okay here we go let's spend a bit of time practicing like a couple of hours and I'm going to be right there with the best in the world. Little did I know I mean these guys are just incredibly quick because <laughs> they have the same talent as the most talented F1 drivers. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then they spend so much time in there it's insane. Like I was doing perfect laps and I was one and a half seconds away from them per lap. So that was like extremely demotivating for me. So since 
since then I haven't spent much time in the sim anymore, but uh, <laughs> they're incredible, these sim racers. Well, look, for, for what it's worth, I can recommend Mario Kart. That is uh, my it's... favorite game of all time. <laughs> I used to spend hours. I think I was one of the first fastest in the world back in the day. I used to do time trials, just trying to beat my time. Hours and hours and hours and hours. Brilliant. You see, I would say, I bet you weren't the fastest in the world today because I was really good. But, you know, you've sort of proven your speed <laughs> quite a bit more than me. So, you know, I'll, I'll hand that one to you. The big question, of course, Nico, because everybody, you've got so much affection across the world, not just from motorsport, but, you know, the, the whole world, that everybody knows you, everybody thinks you're fabulous and, and has a, a great fondness for you. And so the big question is what Nico did next. You know, you, you decided you left F1 and you decided to actually use your time in a very different way, didn't you? You thought, right, rather than entertain and, and race, I'm going to educate, inspire and inform. I did 10 years of studying psychology. Uh, in my time in F1, really to help me with sports mentality, but also to help me in my life in the end, uh, to get even more uh, mental well-being. And what I learned most is that it's, I, I'm, I'm a strong believer that I must more and more dedicate time to a life of service, uh, to being of service to others, because not only is that good for others, but in the end, it will also be good for myself. What you give uh, comes back one day. Um, and, uh, and there I found my positioning now as a sustainability entrepreneur. So everything I'm doing uh, as, a, as an entrepreneur, as you can see behind me, <laughs> those are many of my investment cases floating around behind me. Um, I'm, I'm really invested in particularly in mobility of the future. Uh, so which is uh, greener, greener mobility and, uh, and greener energy and all these kind of things. That's what I'm doing. And so what has been the, the sort of because, of course, we know that green mobility and, and, and transportation of the future, we talk about electrification. A lot of people also think that hydrogen power cells are going to be a big, big player. You know, what's, what's your money on, as it were? Because as, as an entrepreneur, obviously, you have literally put your money where your mouth is. Um, no, first of all, it's on electric mobility for the, for the medium term. Um, that's a clear case. And, and it's a huge opportunity to, be, to make mobility more sustainable. Of course, we still do need to have more renewable energy sources feeding the, feeding the cars with electricity. Because at the moment, if you take Germany as an example, we have 60% of the energy uh, from going into electric cars coming from coal, uh, coal plants. So obviously that's really bad. And, and that makes electric cars in Germany sometimes even less sustainable at the moment than some combustion engines. Um, but it's the future and the path is right. So we need more renewable energy sources. And then we also need to have the whole battery recycling process uh, going in a, in a much better manner, because at the moment there's not really a great plan for that yet. Um, but so, so, yeah, I'm sure of electric mobility. After that comes hydrogen, as you say, but that's going to be 25 years, I think, because the whole infrastructure there is going to be a huge mission to set up. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, when you, when you think about buying an electric car, particularly here in the UK, you know, the, the stories you hear about people's reluctance to get involved are partly about range. Of course, uh, electric cars also come at a bit of a premium at the moment. They're, they're, they're quite dear. They can be at least. And then the other thing is, you know, we, we think about our mobile phones. You know, you get a mobile phone and it works beautifully for the first few months. You can use a whole day and, and you know, the battery's still there. But the battery does. We always, we've all seen our batteries degrade and people are afraid that if they get an electric car, the battery's going to do exactly the same thing with a mobile and just kind of disappear on you all one day. What's, what's your experience? So it's totally right that there's still some, some resistance, uh, justifiably so, um, for all the reasons that you mentioned, the range, the cost, um, and, and the price, price drop uh, being when, when, when it is a used car, all those, all those things matter. And that's why it's not mass adopted yet. But we're in this transition period. And as soon as we get the price to being equal or below the combustion engine, those are the kind of, kind of levers 
that we desperately need now to get electric mobility really to take off. And I'm sure that the governments are, are going to be supporting more and more. I mean, we saw in Germany now they just dropped the taxes on them and, and have supported in other ways. And, and then we also have still the infrastructure problem that at the moment, if you decide to take a big drive with the electric car, A, you might not get far enough and B, you, you don't know if there's a charger there. The other day I drove, to, uh, I drove from Berlin to Leipzig and I got there with a Tesla and there was no charger in the whole city. So I was just stuck. And I complained, I complained to the mayor. I complained to the mayor of Leipzig in person and he got really angry at me because he said, we have 140 chargers, superchargers in this city. What are you talking about, Mr. Rosberg? And it turns out that they were just not adaptable to the Tesla car. Oh. So it's just, it's, it's just fragmented and everybody's trying to do their own thing. And that's a huge problem. Yeah, the manufacturers need to, 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 to kind of speak. You go to a petrol pump right now, one petrol fills all cars. You know, if you're a petrol car, you can use any petrol in it. It, it, it must be the same with an electric car, mustn't it? You know, you, we must have the situation that any electric car can pull up to any charger and be able to get a charge, surely. Further than, uh, than cars, I've also invested quite heavily into uh, flying taxis. Uh, I don't know if you can see one behind what? me. Yes. Yes, Nico, Nico has the most brilliant backdrop. We're chatting on Skype right now. and he's got, So is this your city that, that you're sitting in front of then, Nico? Because we've got future cars. There's, you know, there's a cool landscape. There's kind of uh, skyscrapers with plants growing up them and, and all kinds of awesome things. And there's a flying taxi. So, uh, right, come on, that's just a drawing. Is this, is this real? What's, what's going on here? Well, this is the way a city is going to look in the future. And, uh, and I like to use the diagram because I can, I can show a lot of examples of what the of what the future is going to look like, and you've got the flying taxi somewhere there, I don't know, um, which I've invested in, as I said, and and I really believe in flying taxis because it's going to be a huge opportunity for us to increase our well-being by reducing commuting and by being able to the, to live outside of cities in the green, um, because the, the the flying taxis are going to be so efficient and so fast and so cheap. Uh, so that's another big advantage. They're really going to democratize flying because once they go autonomous. They're not going to cost much more than a taxi today per kilometer. So it's really going to democratize flying and decongest cities, uh, let, reduce the emissions in cities, reduce the noise. It's going to be uh, big. And people think, oh, this is like in a sci-fi movie. One of the portfolio companies of mine are going to be launching commercial flights in the next two years. So in the next two years, you and I can jump in one of these things. It's going to be Singapore or Dubai probably, uh, but it's around the corner. So does that mean, because we, we have seen, I think it's, one of the members of the royal family in Dubai has been in, in one of these flying taxis, haven't they? Does that mean that you, because you've obviously invested, you must have been up close and personal with some prototype vehicles. Have you had a fly yourself? Not yet, unfortunately, no. Oh. Um, but that from the royal family in Dubai was actually the, the company I'm invested in. Um, but uh, I'm looking forward to the first flight uh, very, very soon, hopefully. Now that you're known as an entrepreneur, Nico, and obviously everybody is aware that you know, you're, you're looking at sort of sensible, sustainable, future-focused opportunities. Do you get some of the most crazy things coming across your desk that do feel like a sci-fi movie? Do you have people kind of going to you say, hey, listen, we know you've invested in this and this. Well, have you seen this? Have you had some mad things proposed to you yet? Or is there a bit of a sense check before it gets to you? I see so much technology coming through because I've created one of the leading festivals for green technology in Europe. And yeah. It's called Green Tech Festival, and uh, we had our first event last year in Berlin, and we had 40,000 participants. So it was a, a massive event, and, and this is really one of my lighthouse projects at the moment. And it's a platform where we get, where we get all the thought leaders together and all the, all the greatest green technologies together. And this year's event is going to be on the 16th to 18th of September. Again, it's happening in Berlin, and we're also going virtual. So uh, for all of you, if you're not able to, to come in person, check out the virtual module, uh, 16th to 18th September, greentechfestival.com. 
I mean, Germany has a more open door policy than we have here in the UK right now. You've adjusted to the virus in a slightly different way. So does that mean that the Green Tech Festival, you will still be able to get large numbers of people there as well as having the online experience and the virtual experience? Well, of course, we need to stick to the social distancing measures and all the other measures uh, to take care of the corona situation in the festival. But uh, events are allowed and, and we will have a couple of thousand people there uh, at different times, you know, maybe not everybody in the same time. But we're planning it accordingly and um, and we're going ahead full speed. The only thing, of course, is that we, we're not going to be able to have 40,000 people in the exhibition. So that's the only module which we need to ramp down. But apart from that, it's going ahead with the same kind of content as, as last year. Brilliant. I mean, last year's event was massive. Uh, what's, what's particularly standing out for you for this year? What are the highlights in your head that you think, do you know what, you're going to love this? Um, we're going to have a, a virtual hour where we're going to get uh, like really some of the most inspirational people together, all talking about the Paris Agreement and the 1.5 degree climate uh, global warming target, just so crucial to achieve in this decade. And everybody's going to refer back to that with their projects and with what they're doing. And that's going to be, uh, I think, super big. So again, you're welcome to tune in for that. It's called uh, Switch Green. Ah, it's going to be amazing. Um, Nico, it's, it's such a joy talking to you. You know, you, you've got this great focus of the world you know do you ever sort of think of yourself as a futurist because obviously you're an entrepreneur but you're 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 investing in future technologies and you've obviously seen lots and lots of data to see how cities are going to be transformed in the coming decades so do you, do you ever kind of think of yourself as a bit of a crystal ball gazer you want a little bit but i'm very much investing also in the now because some of these technologies are ready to go now and they are already going now i'm driven to inspire my young kids to also live a life of service and, for example, preserve the environment or if they have other passions, then different ways. I absolutely love that. What a, what a mission statement, Nico. That's absolutely fantastic. Is, is any of this driven nature to preserve the future and to, to, to leave a better planet for your children as well, is any of this, is there any guilt to obviously your former career at F1 where, you know, we know that lots of fossil fuels are burnt to make that happen because they're incredibly fast cars going around racetracks and, you know, aeroplanes full of people traveling the world left, right and center. Is there, is there a degree of guilt and you're, you're balancing it out in the equivalent of a big company planting a million trees, you know, because they've done something that needs to be offset, as it were, or is it just, no, I'm, I'm doing this because it feels right? Let's remember that if one is also going climate uh, emission-free 2030, they've very set uh, ambitious goals in line with yeah. all other big corporations in the world. And we also need to remember that F1's hybrid engine is most likely the most efficient engine in the world at the moment and more efficient and environmentally friendly than electric engines, than fully electric engines. Um, so F1 is on, a, is on a good path there and, and they're doing more and more. So I'm proud of the direction that they're taking and that, that they're also taking sustainability so seriously since, uh, since some time now. Yeah, no, well said, well said. Thank you for picking me up on that. I'm glad you did. Um, Nico, thank you so much for talking to us. Um, just quickly, what's next for you? You seem to be so busy. You've got so much going on, but other than obviously the Green Tech Fest in September, what else are you looking forward to for the rest of 2020? What else is, is in your diary that's going to be a special moment for you? Um, well, I'm a dragon. I'm a dragon in Germany on Dragon's Den. <laughs> That's really cool. What a great answer. Middle of, we're in the middle of filming now. And as soon as I can, we're going to end up filming the, the rest of the season. And the first show is going live end of August. And I'm the sustainability on, in, investor, you know, in, in, on the show. Um, so investing really into sustainable, into startups that, that are like focused on sustainability and sustainable topics. Um, and so this is really a big project and it's not easy eh? because I'm sitting next to like the biggest and most successful startup billionaires 
in Germany, um, you know, who've been doing it for 40 years. So, uh, but but I'm, I'm, I'm up to speed now and it's exciting and it's a good challenge and, and it's been quite successful. I've got some great investments already so far, which uh, I'll be able to tell you about in autumn. What a sentence. I love that you were able to just drop that in. I'm a dragon. And it just, just confirm this for me, Nico. Is, is it your own cash, right? It is your own pile of, because in the UK version, there are, there's like a pile of money sitting on a table. Is that, is that a prop or have you brought in your own cash to, to, to stake your claim? So I don't know how it is in the UK, but in, in Germany, I come to the show with my suitcases full of cash and I put them on the table. And, then, and when I invest, I hand over my own suitcases. Uh, unfortunately, unfortunately, that's the way it needs to be done uh, to make the show authentic as well. That's important, you know, that really we have skin in the game. Um, but I'm happy as well because you can have success then with the companies and there's incredible companies coming through. Uh, so that's that's how it goes. Yeah. That's absolutely wonderful. And do you, obviously over here, when, an, when a dragon is not interested, they're just like, no, I'm out, I'm out. Have you got like a catchphrase? Have you, have you perfected the way that you make it clear that you're not interested? Ich bin raus. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. I can't wait to watch it. German equivalent of uh, I'm out in a very dry in a very dry manner, but it's different from nation to nation. Like if you look at the U.S. guys, they can be so harsh on the startups. In Germany, I don't know how it is in the U.K., but in Germany, we have to be quite careful because uh, like the public uh, the public loves all the all the founders, and if you if you uh, go too hard on them, you get you get a big backlash. Brilliant. So you need to be a little bit more careful in Germany. Brilliant. I love it. Well, I can't wait to watch it. Um, Nico, your company has been fabulous today. Thank you so much for your generosity and, and, and all your time. Really interesting stuff happening. Uh, and I think really it's a case of watch this space with you, isn't it? Nico's World is a fun one. The Andy J Podcast. And now I'm so pleased to welcome a comedian, an author, a presenter, a screenwriter, a man who, in fact, I, I very rarely get to tell my mum who I'm going to be interviewing ahead of time, but when I mentioned who this was, her reaction was, oh, wow, he's a clever old thing, and he certainly is. It's Mr David Badil. How are you doing, David? Hello, Andy. I'm so pleased about your mother's reaction. I can't tell you. <laughs> I mean, it's important, actually, to, to have this relationship with a, a random interviewer's mother, isn't it? You know, she says you're a clever old thing. That, that clearly yeah. means a lot. Yeah, I mean, can I ask how old your mum is? Is uh, that OK? Yeah, yeah, yeah. She's, uh, she's just about to turn 70. She's about to turn 70, yeah. So I'm probably in between her and you in my age. Yeah, I'm 56. Yeah. So what I'm trying to work out is, you know, which of the two of you, as it were, grew up with me. I mean, obviously your mum didn't grow up with me because she's older than me, but you know, she was probably, because I've been around a long time watching me, you know, God, it's possible that she was watching me in her early 40s. Yeah. So I've been, you know, <laughs> that's what I'm thinking. I'm thinking that, yeah, that your mum has possibly been a fan for a while. That's been. why I'm processing that. She has, well, in actual fact, my mum, if I remember rightly, she dropped myself and my mate Pats off to, was it Wembley Arena? To see you and Rob? Oh. So yeah, dropped you off. So you saw, you came to Wembley Arena. We did. So you would have been like what in like a teenager. Yeah, exactly, then. exactly that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When when you wow. guys were were rock and roll stars, obviously yeah. taking, taking on the arenas with comedy, first time it ever been done. I was there. I was a I was a wow. properly. I was there as well. Yeah. Well... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No. I well, blimey, I'm glad you were there. It was quite a night. I mean, I'll be honest with you. Um, I that particular night was so kind of like big and wild and crazy that I don't have that much memory of it as a gig. <laughs> I've got, I can remember other gigs, 
both in my own stand-up career and the new number deal and whatever, you know, fairly clearly some of them. But that one, it was just a big event, you know what I mean? And it sort of blew out my sense of it as a standard stand-up gig. Yeah. I mean, it was it was brilliant. I mean, it was such a... Just the experience itself was super cool. I mean, you know, like you, it's going back a fair chunk of time in my memory as well, but I just... I remember being awestruck and just thinking how really very cool the whole thing was. And, and yeah, it was 1993, I think. Yeah, Christmas wow. 1993. It was the last gig that we and Rob ever did together. Um, and, um, yeah, it was cool. It was cool. Uh, but as I say, I mean, because people sometimes say to me, oh, you started the whole trend for arena comedy, and it was the first one, but actually there weren't that many immediately after it. I think arena comedy then didn't really happen for another 10 years or so until YouTube started, and then you know some comedians started to get really big because of the internet, and they were able to play arenas, but I don't remember anyone playing an arena sort of immediately after New the Deal. No, that's true. That's a very good point. Yeah, well, but I'm very there, and I hope you and your mate got home all right when your mum picked you up. <laughs> yeah, we did. We did. It was absolutely sound. It was that was a great. It was a cracking night. I really enjoyed it. And the lovely thing is, David, that I can actually bring this full circle within the family now for you. So you've heard what my mum thinks, okay? But the new audience is my eldest, my seven-year-old son, <laughs> and I said to him, "Hey, guess who Daddy's going to interview just now?" And he was like, "Who?" I was like. The guy that's writing the book we're reading at the moment. Well, written it, obviously. Anyway, his reaction, oh, cool. Can you ask him if there's <laughs> going to be another one? So, you know, it's come full circle. So you are basically entertained your entire family across three generations, is what you're saying. I hope you're feeling the pressure because, you know. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm pleased about it. I'm pleased that uh, I've kept you all going. Um, well, that's lovely. Uh, I'm really glad your son is a fan. What what book were you reading? So, well, the new one, Future Friend, which is... Oh, you were reading Future yeah, Friend? Oh, I yeah. thought you might be reading one of the older ones. No, I was very fortunate to, uh, to, to, to be able to get my hands on a copy of the book a few days ago. And so we are, we are four nights of reading into it. Now, you tell me if yeah. this is good going or not, David. So we're, I've, I've literally got the book in front of me now, and I'm just flicking through where the bookmark is. So we're on page 255. So that's how quickly okay. we're consuming this book you know he is oh that is good he is cool. loving it i'm literally i finish a chapter because your chapters are quite short i finish a chapter and think yeah. okay I've, I've, that's i can, he can clearly see that's a chapter he's gonna let daddy go now oh come on just, how does just it work more, can i ask you more. because my children were well actually they weren't too old my son wasn't too old but i didn't really i read them the books but only as i was kind of writing them okay because partly because i wanted their thoughts right so what I've never done is sit with the book and the illustrations and sort of read it to them. Do you read a bit and then show them the pictures, or how does it work? Well, it's a bit simultaneous, because, and it also depends on his level of alertness, of course. You know, like, like because we're reading in bed before he falls asleep. So right. He's, well, I'm going to take it badly if he falls asleep too quickly. He's, well, no, he's, this is the thing. He's never fallen asleep, I mean, in the four nights we've been reading it, but he has told me he's, he's had dreams that have been influenced by the story, which is lovely. I've really, I've been really... It's particularly lovely because the first chapter, because it's set in 3020, I should perhaps say this for anyone listening, tell them what the book's about. It's about a girl from 3020 who uh, gets into a time machine accidentally uh, and gets transported back to our time, although for reasons that we perhaps, perhaps talk about in a minute, it's not exactly our time, it's 2019. Yes. But in the first chapter of The World of 3020, she is in her bed pod and has set her dream to be 
scoring the winning goal in the World League final because she loves football. And uh, kids, apparently, that I've spoken to already tell me they love the idea of being able to set your dreams, a machine that sets dreams. Yes, yes, absolutely right. And and my eldest absolutely loves the idea of the parrot having a tiny bed as well, incidentally. Yeah. He, th- he thinks that's brilliant because, you know, again, <laughs> if the listener hasn't read the book yet, there's gadgets, talking animals, robot clones, and I'm not giving any of the storyline away. That's for you to do, should you so wish or not. But, yeah, what I can say is, so my son loves drawing. He's a, he's a very passionate artist, so... He does consume the pictures as well, but he he sees a lot in his head as well, obviously, because you've written it. So I mean, you know this, you've been writing forever. You write it so eloquently and, and you paint the pictures already. So with your words. So, yes, he he does look at the pictures, of course, but he his imagination is is right there as well. Um, how many ch- children do you have? Uh, two with another one on the way. All right. So actually we've got an older child or a younger child. My my eldest is the one I'm 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 reading it to at the moment. He's seven. Okay, right. So seven because my books, I get asked a lot on uh, Twitter or in conversation about my children's books. What age are they for? And I always say, well, kind of any age, really. I mean, including adults, because there's lots of things in the book that I think adults respond to as well if they're reading them to their children. Absolutely. Um, and I also think younger children, like um, a four-year-old or the parents of a four-year-old, told me that they were reading the book, uh, one of my books, to them recently. And I thought, well, that's quite young. But I don't see why you can't, in the process of storytelling you know they won't get everything but they'll still enjoy the process i would have thought but seven is kind of great because the the sweet spot i guess is between seven and 13 yes yes well it's i mean this was a really i because i wasn't sure i mean i i kind of checked the internet and i was kind of people were kind of coming back with nine years old and i thought well do you know what i've read my boy harry potter and he's done all right with that so i'm going to dive in and he was just engrossed from the beginning and what i'm really pleased to say and i'm sure that this was intentional on your part is he's also started asking the questions almost sort of in the same sort of Attenborough-esque way where you're making things clear about what we're doing to the planet and the food we eat etc you know animals and so on and so forth about how the future perspective is that's not a good thing you know and I'm loving that that you know we had a conversation over breakfast this morning where he was like so daddy you know the whole animal thing I don't I don't think I want to do that anymore and I was really really pleased and I'm sure that that is in part down to the way you've worded it in the book you're not forcing anything or anything you're just making some very clear points which I which I think are great oh that's cool I mean I'm not going to give any spoilers away but just so 3020 in the book is a dystopia um it's a uh, not nightmarish but you know climate change and as it happens, and this is why I had to change it back to 2019, viruses, mutant viruses, make it impossible for anyone to go out. So everyone just lives in tall towers in 3020. And well, I wrote this in January, by the way. And when Pip comes back to our world, and I got to I was writing in February by now, I thought this is no good because I wanted her to come back and be able to go out and have fun and feel healthy and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I thought, oh, no, that's no good. So I had to put it back to 2019. So it's now a thousand and one years into the future. So the world is portrayed in 3020, although it's got loads of gadgets and animals have evolved to speak and it's kind of fun, it's also quite dangerous and there's a lot of jeopardy. And so part of the process, uh, without giving too much away, is that when she comes back and she meets Raoul, who's uh, an inventor, he's a child inventor, he actually was a major character in my previous book, The Taylor Turbo Chaser, where he supercharged his best friend's electric wheelchair to become a kind of chitty-chitty, bang-bang style supercar. 
he's she's now gone off in the car to Scotland and he's slightly lonely and so she appears in uh, her, his dad's warehouse, this girl from the future. And then part of the process is whether or not they can get her back to the future where she needs to get back to. And in so doing, kind of save the world. But I'm not going to give any any clues as to whether or not they managed to do that. Brilliant. Well, given that I've got a few pages to go now, I'm, I've got so many questions that I can't ask because it'll spoil it for me. Because in the same way that I'm loving reading to my son... It's a new story to me as well. And like you said, with adults, I'm really enjoying it. It's really lovely. And this is your first foray into sort of science fiction, isn't it? Yeah, uh, it is. I mean, I've written four adult novels, seven children's novels, uh, a film, a play. Oh, well, I wrote a play, actually. God's which was on in Yeah, God's Dice, which was on in at Soho Theatre in September and was about to transfer to the West End when <laughs> the West End shut down. Um, and that was about physics, and it was about religion and physics, and it was sort of about a girl, well, a young woman who's a kind of genius and who finds these uh, equations that appear to prove the existence of God and prove the existence of miracles. And it's set in the completely normal, everyday academic universe, but it's got an element of science fiction to it that has, I would say. Um, and I, I really like science fiction. I've read and watched a lot of science fiction. so. I hadn't really thought about doing a kid's book, a sort of genre kid's book before, but there's no reason why not, particularly because obviously Doctor Who is loved by kids and time travel in general is, is a really good idea for kids because, as you say, it's really fun, but it's also kind of educational. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, I just went for it. I also am a big fan of E.T. E.T. is one of my favourite films. Oh, yeah. And uh, just the structure of E.T., about a creature that comes from another place and becomes friendly with a boy from now, that it's very cool. And, and another little aside about E.T. that you may not know, actually, um, although I kind of see you as the oracle of many things, so you probably do know this. But I had the privilege of talking to Sir Chris Hoy uh, a couple of days ago, and he cites E.T. as the reason why he got on a bike. I didn't know that. <laughs> it may be the oracle of many things. I don't know why did Chris Hoy get on a bike because of E.T.? You'll have to explain a bit more there. Well, simply because as a kid... He watched E.T. He'd never even knew that you could do that kind of thing on a BMX, and he immediately wanted a BMX. Oh. He got the BMX and six Olympic golds later, and he's then crediting E.T. with it. Well, Okay, but is the Chris Hoy still thinking, but it never flew? <laughs> Why did it never fly? <laughs> I did very well on a bike, but I never flew across the moon. I'm worried he's thinking that now. <laughs> that should have I been. can tell you something about E.T. for me, which is uh, it was very important for me, which is when I was a teenager, I was quite... Um, pretentious. I had a big kind of the cure hair and I was quite like, I'm a poet and whatever. And I didn't really go and watch mainstream films. I used to go and watch a lot of art films. Okay. And I was a bit annoying is what I'm saying. And um, then one day as a laugh, kind of to sneer at it probably, I went to see E.T. And I never cried so much in my life. Oh, it was yeah. unbelievable. I just unlocked this pretentiousness and made it how I see that's what actual emotion can be created by storytelling. Uh, I still think, I still think that the end of E.T. is one of the most moving things that's ever been committed to cinema. When E.T. says, I'll be right here to Elliot, oh. it's so unbelievably moving. Absolutely. Uh, and in a way, it's really important for me because I think that made me think, oh, what I want to be is a storyteller. Yes, yes, it's, it's such a magical piece of, of, of filmmaking. I, I still can't get through the, the, uh, the hospital scene. 
Yeah, I still can't. Yeah, get through it's it. very upsetting. Yeah. Yeah, even I mean, even just the music. I've got I've got the hairs on my arms stand, standing up as we're speaking now, thinking about it, David. It's uh, it's ridiculous. A quick one. Can we just go back to God's dice very quickly? Because I, you know, you, you sort of touched on you know the, the kind of quantum physics sort of side of it and its relationship to religion and 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 this 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 girl who finds, you know, finds this this kind of example of God, which is amazing. And, and it's kind of got me thinking about these incredible TV shows and films that, that have come out recently, like like Devs. I don't know if you saw that on BBC Two. I saw Devs. Which I thought was remarkable, you know, incredible piece. Yeah, of it was great. You know, an X match. Devs was great. I mean, actually, I, I really, I'm not, I was no yeah. way I wasn't going to watch Devs because I'm obsessed with quantum physics and trying to understand quantum physics. It's something to do with, well, it's to do with two things. One is my dad was a scientist, um, and before he got made redundant and sold dinky toys for the rest of his life, but he was a scientist in the air house when I was a kid. Science was absolute king and you know the idea that you would be interested in the arts was kind of like laughable and i think even though i rejected that with some difficulty because my dad was cross about it i think it stayed with me a bit that kind of real understanding of the world comes from science really and even though that that's a very broad thing to say i think as i've got older uh, and the idea of like, okay, I need to try and understand the world. Uh, that's like part of my wisdom I'm supposed to have as I grow older. It comes from trying to understand nature in its very basic forms, and that would that really is what physics is, is about. Um, and so I was always going to watch Devs because Devs, I think probably Alex Garland has got the same thing. Clearly, was written by someone who'd read a lot of popular physics books um and yeah no i really liked it and god's dice was sort of in that mold i think it's based on the the einstein quote god does not play dice with the universe is that right it, it is based that's what the, that's what the title was based on mm. um i mean i don't know how much quantum physics your listeners are, are into but uh <laughs> it was it's based on something well, i'm going to tell you very I'll, very briefly if i can uh basically Quantum physics suggests that everything exists in a cloud of probability. So because you can never tell where any particle is, basically everything that we see is just likely to be there, but may not be there, maybe somewhere else or whatever. And therefore, um, really extraordinary stuff might be true. It might be true that uh, in some infinitesimal probability, um, the Red Sea split in half, water turned into wine. You can provide an equation, which happens in the play, for the probability that water could turn into wine. It's like an infinitesimal possibility based on all the molecules in water and wine behaving really weirdly at one particular moment. And so this girl uses these, this idea to sort of create an idea that maybe all the miracles that we base our mythic culture on, our religious culture on, maybe they are true. And yeah, a kind of religious cult grows out of that. I love it. Wow, <laughs> blimey! I mean, you know, unfortunately, it's not on. It's not on at the moment because yeah. there's no theatre. Is it? I mean, is it? Oh, I mean, that's a bigger question, isn't it? Is is it looking like it will return when theatres and? Oh, I mean, normal is such a rubbish name for what we're going back to if we ever get back there. But you know what I mean? If we get a a control of this virus, which again is 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 like a rolling a dice at the moment itself. But should theatres mm. reopen, does it look like it will it will go to the to the West End as planned? Um, I, possibly. I mean, as it happens, I got asked to do my troll show. So I, I was before lockdown started doing my stand up show, which is called Trolls Not the Dolls, which is about 
online rage and craziness and stuff and my own experiences amongst the kind of darkest and most terrible part of Twitter. And I was doing my show about that when lockdown happened and just the other day, because NIMAX, the company NIMAX, who run about five West End theatres, are rather bravely opening them up and doing shows, and they offered me a week uh, doing Trolls Not the Dolls. Uh, and I, in the end, decided not to do it, not because I don't support what they're doing, but I just thought things are going slightly in the wrong way at okay. the moment. Um, I'm not convinced that people are going to, certainly not uh, my age of audience, which is kind of over 40, <laughs> and not I'm not talking about the children's books now, but the people who come to my stand-up shows, uh, they said to me people who maybe saw me at Wembley, um, whether they're going to want to come out and, and, and watch shows and sit in an audience if the R rating gets worse and worse. Having said that, I'm encouraged by the fact that stuff is happening, people are trying to put stuff on, plays are schedules and all the rest of it and yeah I mean I think God's Dice which had Alan Davis in the main role and was brilliant in it and I think was keen at that point at least to do it again if, if everything could be put together in the same way then it would happen in the West End one interesting thing about that is that the first conversation that I had when people said to me oh you want to do this play again maybe when theatre starts again is they started saying but how are you, how are you going to include the pandemic Right. And then there was this weird thing, which I thought, what, so everything that's written now, everything that's restaged, everything new, is going to have to somehow include the pandemic. And that's odd, because you think, like, well, it's about religion and physics. It's not really anything to do with a global pandemic. But then not to have it in feels weird, yeah. because there are scenes in which people are at parties, and there are scenes in which people are at lectures. You think, like, well, that wouldn't happen. So, yeah, so that was a challenge, which I haven't got down to facing at the moment. Yeah, that's that's a tough one to figure out, isn't it? I guess it's a tough one for all fiction. It's all fiction from now on, apart from period stuff or indeed science fiction. Anything set now, which is when most fiction is set, you know, most novels are just set in whatever time you know we're all existing in. Is it always going to have to include that social distancing and masks and you know all the rest of it? I mean, maybe it is, but it seems to me a bit weird because. Like I saw something yesterday, right? I saw this program, which is on telly now, called Love Life with Anna Kendrick in it. Okay. I don't know if you've seen it. Not yet. It's, no. just, on, it's just on BBC now. Okay. So it's set in 2010, and there didn't seem to be any reason for it to be set in 2010. And I thought, are they just setting it in 2010 to avoid the virus? Which they might be. I mean, that's what I did with Future Friends. I, I set it say. in 2019. Yeah, I, th I mean, yeah. everything's just going to be in 2019, isn't it, for the next 15 yeah, years? Yeah, we have this weird thing where all drama and all novels are going to stop at 2019. Yeah, there'll be there will literally be nothing set in 2020. It'll be well, unless it's about unless it's about the a pandemic show. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Gosh, I mean, I mean, I've sort of had a look on, on your website because I'd love to come and see you again. And, and Trolls Not the Dolls is, sounds like it's going to be hilarious. It, it does say that you are set to start again at the Watford Coliseum in February 2021. Is, is that still yeah. a big question mark? Yeah, well, at the moment, at the moment it is. But I, if I'm allowed to mention another radio show, but I did uh, Chris Evans' radio show this morning. He's part uh, of the family. You're, you're more than welcome. Yeah, he's part of the family. Yeah. Cool. Well, I did his Virgin Breakfast show this morning. And I mentioned that, and he said I'd go for September. Um, so really? <laughs> I don't know that Chris Evans is Nostradamus with this stuff, but I take his point. I can't, I don't feel in my bones that uh, a stand-up tour, stand-up tours in general, will be back on in February. But I hope so. I mean, apart from anything, one of the things that 
I think a lot of comedians think about is how material dates, like topically. I mean, some of it's obviously topical. So I have 10 minutes in my show about Trump, okay? Now, I don't know that Trump will be relevant or as relevant in a year's time as he is now if he, if he loses the election. But just generally, when one writes comedy, it tends to feel like, okay, this is like what is of now. You know, it's like guys see it's relevant, even if it's not specifically about politicians from now or whatever. And then suddenly you're doing a show three years after you wrote it. It can feel really weird. So obviously I'll write new stuff, but I still want to do that show that I was planning to do because that's what people bought tickets for, you know. Yes, yes, that's a, that's a really challenging. You've got some dilemmas ahead, David. I think we all have, though, Andy, haven't we? It's all, you know, one thing that 2020 has been is challenging. <laughs> it's created a lot of dilemmas for all of us. Yes, yes, it's, it's been, uh, I mean, I've heard it sort of described in so many different ways, as I'm sure have you. And, and you know, th- there's this sort of slightly condescending phrase that keeps coming back, which is the great reset button, uh, you know, for humanity. And it just, I, I don't really see that. I, I don't know if I'm kind of naive there, but I, I, how is it a reset? You know, we're... we're <sighs> Yeah, I don't know if it is a reset. I, I think, because apart from anything, I think we've been primed by fiction, by science fiction or whatever, to think that if there's a great event like a pandemic, and I've actually read a few books about pandemics, um, they tend to wipe out humanity, don't they? Or, or you know, 90% of humanity, and then it's very apocalyptic and everything has to start again. Whereas, of course, what's happened with this is a kind of fractured, limping, you know, things, you know, it was really impactful, but it's not like the whole of our civilization has changed. Some people seem unaffected by it, you know, and then we're starting our civilization again, but they're not, you know what I mean? It's very, it's not like a drama where things tend to be, right, here's the big instigating incident and now everything's different. It's very real life in that it's kind of like shades of grey as to whether or not we've all changed or it's in fact just like it was before, but much more inconvenient. Yeah, well, I mean, I, f- I feel like it, it united everybody for about five minutes, and then yeah. some people chose to behave and, and do what we were told, and other people decided to completely ignore it, and, you know, everyone just kind of splintered so quickly. You know, people decided yeah. to decide for themselves much faster than I think we were anticipating. Yeah, although I, have, I tell you what I've heard, I heard it today, and I've heard it before, is there are people and I guess even I am in a way, who are nostalgic for the early days of what might be considered to be proper lockdown because of that sense that, you know, even though it was harsher in terms of restrictions, there was a sense of community of everyone being in it together. Mm. The clapping felt incredibly emotional back then. You know, it felt more like, okay, we are in this drama and we're all together and we're all pulling through together. Whereas now, with local lockdowns being different and, you know, a sense that, like, oh, well, I'm not sure we're all experiencing the same thing. It, it, it's hard to know how to feel about it. I blame the eye test. Uh, what, um, Dominic's eye test? Yes, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I would say we'd just go to an optician next time. <laughs> it's really easier. Yeah. And they have them in Durham. <laughs> yeah. No one's pointed that out, actually. Actually, can I just say no one's pointed that I know, I know a lot of people have pointed out how ridiculous it is to say you had to drive to Barnard Castle from Durham to check your eyesight. Yeah. But no one has said, 
And I've been to Durham. I played it twice on my last tour. And I remember quite clearly there's a boot and they've got an optician in Durham. With <laughs> so I don't know why you couldn't just go there. Yeah. Well, in fact, there's probably several in Durham. I'd have thought there'd at least be a Specsavers as well. The Andy J Podcast. Now, I am thrilled to be able to welcome a BAFTA-winning actor, a national treasure, and someone I used to sit opposite on the Northern Line heading into Soho. It's Miriam Margulies. How are you doing, Miriam? Well, I never knew that. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> that, that was you, right? About 15, 20 years ago? It would be, yes. The Northern <laughs> Line, unfortunately, is my line. I knew it. I knew it was you. There was, I literally, I sat opposite you on the front carriage of the Northern Line probably a hundred times. And I was always like, yeah, I gave you a cheeky little grin. And sometimes you replied and sometimes you ignored me, which is fair enough. <laughs> well, if I'd known it was you, I probably wouldn't have ignored you. <laughs> Miriam, we've so much to talk about and, and so little time. So shall we dive straight in with this wonderful new show on BBC Two, Almost Australian? There are a few things a 78-year-old lady like me needs, and one of them is a toilet outside the kitchen. What made you take this decision to do this? Well, I had a house, and, but I also had a mortgage. I thought better to feel wealthy in something small than feel anxious about mortgage and maintenance on a single pension. It was an exhausting, challenging business, you know, and I'm, I'm not a young woman anymore, and I'm not an active young woman, I'm afraid, or even an active old woman, but I was on this. It, it, uh, it was thrilling, and I learned a lot about Australia, and the main thing is the people I met. I mean, the programme, although my name's on the title, it's really about the people that I met. I do love the country, and when I criticise, it's because I want it to be better. Yes. Well, it's, it's all about chasing the Australian dream. Is that right? And, and finding out if that is really a thing anymore. Well, that was in the first episode. There's other... There's the concept of mateship is examined as well next week. But, uh, yes, I mean, the first one is about... What is the Australian dream? Which is actually very much like what is the American dream or anybody's dream. Um, it's a house of your own and, in, and, and a nice little picket fence and um, an easy life. But it's not all like that. Yes, yes. Well, I've, I've been reading about the episodes to come and it sounds like you've got some amazing things on the way, hanging out with transgender Tiwi Islanders, getting involved in some Aussie rules hanging out at a, a koala rescue centre, surfing. I mean, these are, these are things I would have down on the bucket list, Miriam. <laughs> well, don't worry. No-one's going to see me in a bikini, so everybody can relax on that one. Um, I do go to the beach, but you, you have to go to the beach if you're in Australia because an awful lot of, of Australian life is about the sea and, and beach life, and that's what people see on those real estate programmes, you know, is escape. And, and they they show you the beach. But there's an awful lot more as well. And some of it is wonderful and some of it isn't. Yes, yes. I remember the very first time I went to Australia, my only experience of it was from watching Neighbours and Home and Away. So I just assumed... <laughs> yes. you know, well, I, just... I mean, that was my experience too until I went on this trip. And, and one of the things that I learned was how vast the country is. Yeah. Because we all live in our own little bubble. And it's just, you know, the people we see, the people we know, the world we live in. But there's a huge exterior 
um, well, they call it the interior, you know, the outback. Yeah. And there it is. And it is scary and overwhelming. Yes, yes. I, I, I can remember landing and getting immediately on a night bus that just travelled for, I think it was 17 hours, and there was nothing to see the entire time. It was just this big, empty space. And you're like, wow, how big is this place? This is crazy. Well, it takes seven hours to fly across Australia. Yeah. It is a continent. It's not a country. Yeah, amazing, amazing. It's, I mean, it does sound like you had a huge, it, it's sort of not just a lot of fun, but a very educational experience making this show. Yes, it was, because, you know, you learn from people. You learn how to look at life through someone else's eyes. And that's originally why I became an actress, because I'm not a documentarian. I'm, I'm an actress, really. And it's a bit cheeky of me to try to do something else. But I am profoundly curious. I want to know about people. I want to, to really understand why they see life differently from me. Mm. And this is a way of doing it. Has that always been the case with you, Miriam? Because like you say, as, as an actor, you are, you are naturally inhabiting other personalities, other, other character types. Don't call me an actor. I'm an actress. Okay. Thank you. Thank you <laughs> I'm a lady. Me. I'm a lady, darling. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, yes, I have always. I've always wanted to know everything about everybody. And I ask questions, sometimes impertinent questions, because I feel there's so little time for us to get to know the things we need to know. Yeah. And so I get down to the nitty gritty as quickly as possible. I think we do need to know about each other because otherwise we're going to die because already Brexit has horribly split the nation. Yeah. And we're not a United Kingdom anymore. It doesn't feel like that. And, you know, obviously you can tell I was a Remainer and, and that's my position. But I don't want to hate people who voted differently. I've got to try to understand them mm. and, and, and see the world through their eyes. And they've got to do the same. Yes, yes, agreed. Um, Miriam, I, I need to ask you about Watching Rosie, because this is another project of yours that's, that's on the way. This will be available from the 6th of August. And this sounds like a, a huge challenge a remarkable yes, well, it was completely different because instead of getting on a inside a huge truck and going for thousands of miles, I was stuck inside my house um, facing a Zoom camera and um, playing a woman with Alzheimer's, which hopefully is not going to be my fate, but you never can tell. And um, I did it to help raise funds for the dementia uh, society UK dementia because it's a problem that uh, almost every family knows about even if it's not in your own family you know of others who've who've had this terrible disease and seen the havoc that it causes and I just wanted to try to help in the way that I can I'm working with a very clever team god it was difficult I mean it really is very hard because you know when you're when you're filming with a, 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 a really it's basically just an iphone you know a mobile a mobile phone camera you're not getting the, the experience of working with someone you're just looking into a cold little eye and it's not 
a human eye, and I, I really found it hard. And it's very much like my own mother, actually, because even when Mummy um, had her stroke and couldn't speak, she she would grip my arm and say, get married, get married, Brilliant. because she was so anxious for me to do so. I don't think she would have been if she'd known I was marrying a woman. <laughs> <laughs> well, I have to ask you about Heather. How did she feel about you well, coming back to almost Australian again? How did she feel about you going off for such a long time? Well, we are very used to uh, living apart because we do. She's in Amsterdam most of the time, and I'm in, in London most of the time. And Australia is the place where we can be together. I think one of the reasons that we've, we've had a relationship which has lasted for 52 years, by the way, um, is because we don't live together. <laughs> so I haven't got any, any tips for marriage. Uh, by the way, uh, we have a civil partnership, not, a, not an actual marriage. But I think she, all she said was, for goodness sake, don't talk about me and don't, I don't want to be in it. <laughs> so she said, you know, you get on with it. It's your thing. Do it. Brilliant. Those are nice, easy rules. I like that. And, and clearly, I just need to tell my wife to move to Amsterdam and everything will be fine. I, <laughs> I don't think she'd be thrilled about that, she, but it, it works for us. Look, she, everybody has their own thing, don't they? They do. They do. No, I think she'd absolutely love it, actually. Um, the, the last <laughs> one I have to ask you about, Miriam, it's because I've noticed this and I'm such a huge fan of this that I just need to get just a little line from you because it just sounds amazing, is The Sandman, where you're playing Despair. Yes, well, I, I'm so embarrassed about this because I've never heard of Neil Gaiman. <gasps> And I didn't know anything about the Sandman or any of those programs, but I have worked before for the wonderful director and producer of the whole thing, Dirk Mag. Yeah. And he asked me, you know, would I do it? And I said, well, I don't know what it is. What is it? And <laughs> he, was, he turned pale and said, well... I'll send you the script. And, of course, when I read the script, I thought it was wonderfully imaginative. And, yes. and I'm very proud to be a part of it. And I feel embarrassed that my my knowledge of, of, of uh, you know, pop culture is, is so desperately small. Well, what an incredible thing to discover, though. I mean, bizarrely, I found out about it because Dirk Mags and I, what a name, incidentally, are friends on Facebook. And he put a picture of you up on Facebook the other day going, Miriam's here to record as despair. And I was like, that's amazing. Wow. <laughs> well, I started in radio, and I think probably I will finish in radio or the equivalent of it because podcasts and so on are really just radio and voice work. And although I've got old, my voice hasn't. And I've been able to retain some energy and uh, crispness, which uh, my body, unfortunately, has not allowed me to do. You're so busy. What's next for you? Have you got something? Are you going to have a little rest or is there just loads happening? I am going to have a rest. But I, before I go on my holiday to Italy, which I've been looking forward to desperately because I'm not very good at this lockdown thing. I, I feel very trammeled. Um, <laughs> I'm I'm finishing the recording of the Warringham Chronicles, which is a very long and rather wonderful historical novel set in the 14th century. It, I think it's the longest book ever recorded, and I'm the narrator. It's got loads of wonderful people in it. And the first book, um, which was, I think, called Scarlet, 
Scarlet City, that's right, Scarlet City, was such a hit that, um, bang, they asked me to do another one. I'm not prepared to kneel under the under the bed with, with duvets and record. I do have to have a bit of comfort. I mean, I'm nearly 80 and I've done my best, you know. So. The Andy J Podcast. So there you go. That's this week's episode of the Andy J Podcast. Thank you to Miriam, Nigel, David, Celia, Nico and Darren for your company. These are all conversations that I absolutely cherished. So I just wanted to share them with you again. Like I say, lots of new listeners to the show now, according to the stats. So welcome to you. If you are a newbie or if you're one of our long-termers, then why not tell someone else about the show? You know, word of mouth with a podcast apparently is a great way of spreading If you're liking what you're hearing, please do share it, tell your friends, chuck it on social media or however. Just send a text to someone. We'd love as many people to be listening to this as possible. We're back next week with more conversations. We've got three really cool guests for you next week, actually. So, um, yeah, looking forward to that. Have a great week. Stay safe. Stay well. Wash your hands and stay indoors. Thank you, Baked Potato. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.